Hello, and welcome to Making the Museum. I'm Jonathan Alger, and this is a project of C&G Partners, Design for Culture. Today, I'm joined by Ian Kerrigan from the 9-11 Memorial and Museum. Ian, welcome to the show. Thank you, Jonathan. Uh, so to get started, for those who don't know you like I do, could you tell our listeners who you are and what you do? Sure. I am the Senior Vice President for Exhibitions here at the 9-11 Memorial and Museum in New York. I've been here just a shy of 16 years, uh, and I work with a really great team that's responsible for all of the content development, research and interpretation, design installation, media production, project management, and exhibition policymaking for the institution. <laughs> all right. So I'm trying to count the hats you just mentioned. You wear a bunch of hats, but it's 16 years worth of hats. That's, that is excellent. My favorite side question, I ask everybody, how did you originally get into this business? Usually it's sideways, backwards, upside down, or all three. How about you? So I had a really great advisor during my undergrad years. I was studying anthropology out in Chicago at Northwestern University, and my advisor said, ah, the Field Museum, which is the main natural history museum downtown, was starting a new program for summer interns, and they were looking for undergraduate students and graduate students who might be interested in museum work to be part of a program that would be paid, which at that point was not normal, <laughs> to learn a little bit about what it's like to work in a museum, and then also be paired with a community-based organization in the city somewhere that had some ethnographic question that they were trying to grapple with, and we could get some real-world research experience. And so I did that for two summers, and the research side was a little interesting, but what I was really interested was how museum then translated that information and turned it into exhibitions or public programs or educational resources. And so years later, when I thought about going back to grad school, I was like, oh, you know, museums, they're really neat. Always loved them from since when I was a child growing up in Philadelphia, where I say my first exhibition experience was the heart um, that I think is a historic landmark at this point at the Franklin Institute that you can actually walk through. And I really enjoyed this experience at the Field Museum. And I said, you know what? I think I'm interested in studying museums. And so I went back to grad school, studied museums for a bit, and then realized I don't want to study museums. I want to be a practitioner. <laughs> like I want to do this fun thing that is transforming content and research into experiences for the general public. And that's how I got going. Wow. That's a great story. I wonder how many, because I know that heart, that walk-in heart at the Franklin Institute too. I wonder how many people in our industry were inspired to go into this industry because of that heart. <laughs> I do know a few other. And those that are contemporaneous to me have not only a visual and auditory memory, but also an olfactory memory. What, okay, what now I have to ask about that. What does it smell like inside that heart? It smells like a bunch of fifth graders who oh, spent a okay. lot of time in there. I see. Oh, okay. I, I have no personal olfactory memory of that, <laughs> but I think that has just been added to my own memory and will... I'm going to remember that somehow later on. It has been recreated in the years since, so I think it is vastly improved. Okay. That is that is awesome. So today we are going to talk about exhibition, the Journal of Exhibition Theory and Practice. What's the what's inspired you to come up with this list? We're going to, we're going to talk about what some of the past episodes have been about for the field. And first of all, maybe I should ask you, what your role is on that, or have you explained what your role is on that, and then talk a little bit about that magazine. Sure, yeah. I currently serve as the managing editor for Exhibition Journal, which means I'm responsible for all of the production design, contractual business side of the journal. It's been around for quite a while in some format or another since the 1990s, I believe. The journal used to be called Exhibitionist, but as you might imagine, the advent of internet search engines made that a uh, tongue-in-cheek a little too risque when people were trying to look up articles in the journal. So it changed its name, I think, back in 2016 to just Exhibition. Uh, and it's run by a really great team. Our current editor, Gene Norman Goswami, and I work really closely together coming up with the themes, soliciting articles, 
twice a year. The journal comes out in late April, early May, and then again in late October, early November. And then our designer, I should also give a shout out to Sharita Padamikakorn of Cool Girl Posse, helps make all of the content visually engaging and accessible in the layouts each year. And then a really great editorial advisory board of about 10 volunteers from across the museum field that peer review all of the content and make sure that is up, up to snuff. And each issue of the drill has a different theme that we try to envision as broadly as possible so that different types of museum professionals, different types of institutions, different subject matter experts could maybe somehow see their selves and their projects and their institutions within that theme. And then they submit proposals. We select a few number of those and it gets published twice a year. Great. I should, for our dear listener, I just want to fill in a couple of blanks. I want to ask what, first of all, I would like to ask, but I probably won't. I probably shouldn't ask. What in that period of time between when the internet and internet search was created and 2016, when you changed the name, I wonder what happened when people were searching for the name, the old name of the magazine for 20 years and finding, I wouldn't even ask that question, but really my question <laughs> I is- I think they knew whether they had found it or not. <laughs> I, I think, and yeah, I'm not even going to touch this subject, but the real question or the clarification for our listeners, I just wanted to make sure- Exhibition, the Journal of Exhibition Theory and Practice, is a magazine put out by whom, as opposed to Museum, which is the magazine of the American Alliance of Museums. Exhibition is put out by the National Association of Museum Exhibitors, or what is the relationship with that subgroup of AAM? Yeah, sure. So I can say that the Journal Exhibition is published by the American Alliance of Museums. Okay. And until very recently, was managed by volunteer professional network group known as NAME, the National Association for Museum Exhibition. This year, AAM decided to sunset its professional network program in favor of um, new ways to engage different professional communities within the museum field and offer new volunteer opportunities for people to get involved in a variety of different ways. All of that still has to get worked out, and there's a lot of open questions about how that is going to what it's going to look like moving forward. But I am pleased to say that the exhibition journal is still continuing to be published under the auspices of AAM. And the same team that worked on it before with name is continuing to work on it now. Got it. Okay. That's very clear. So now it's just both AAM. All right. Let's get right into this. Um, sure. uh, here we go. As always, I know the list, but not much more. And as I like to say, my guest has the rest. So we're talking about exhibition, the Journal of Exhibition Theory and Practice. And we you have seven, basically, issues of the magazine in reverse chronological order, twice a year, as you said. We're going to talk about the themes and what you've learned and what you noticed in each one of these to share with our listeners. So the first one is the most recent one. Number one, big ideas on small or smaller budgets in spring of 23. And what was that theme about? Why that theme? Why was it put forward? How were How was your audience looking for that? And what did you learn from that episode? We try to think about each issue on its own, what would be an interesting theme to all of our readers and to the profession at large, but also try to balance themes between ones that are maybe more broad and theoretical and ones that are maybe more nuts and bolts related. This one was maybe more in the latter category and came about after a couple years into the pandemic, maybe coming out of it. And we were hearing a lot of people from the field saying they were still being asked to work on limited budgets, either a project that started with a small budget or halfway through, their budgets were significantly reduced. And so we thought this would be an interesting topic to explore with the field. And I guess I should also mention here at the onset that anything I'm about to say are my own personal <laughs> opinions. They are not representative of the rest of the editorial team of the journal or AAM or my museum or anybody else like that. <laughs> duly, duly noted for the record. Okay. <laughs> I think this issue had some specific takeaways about how to work with smaller budgets. I found a couple interesting takeaways from some of the articles. One, I think, was, for me, the concept of value engineering. And I think most of us will deploy that term when we find, oh, no, our projects has gone over budget. We're really focused on bringing our exhibition development aspirations in line with financial realities. But I think value engineering is a concept that any healthy exhibition project 
should probably engage in at various points of its development, subjecting the different exhibition components to the value they bring via the function that they are serving within the project. One such value is monetary investment, but I think we can also think about staff or consultant time as a resource that has to go in and should be evaluated in the same way. We can think of Does a particular component in the exhibition, be that an artifact or a label or an interactive, best support the curatorial message? Is it duplicative of different things doing the same job? And do we need all of them? Do we need to look at the different design materials and make those same choices and so on and so forth? There's a, (laughs) I am a, or have been a distance runner for much of my life. And there's an expression amongst distance runners that Hydration is a process, not an event. If you don't just drink once, you should be well hydrated before you're racing and continue throughout your marathon. And I think the same could be applied to value engineering, that I think it should be an ongoing assessment and not a one-time occurrence in our exhibition projects. I did not realize that you were a distance runner. You just said the word marathon. Does that mean real marathons, like you marathon plural? Yes. It has been a while since I've done my last marathon. As I get older, I have realized the value of much shorter distances. I've done my own value engineering <laughs> with my body. But yes, I've done many marathons over the course of my Many marathons. Career. Just even the word marathon is very impressive to me. Marathon with an S at the end is even more impressive. And then the word many in front of that, I am now very impressed. And uh, I some love people the idea. think of it as a sickness, but uh, <laughs> they were oh. enjoyable while, when I was doing them regularly. <laughs> that seems like a very healthy sickness if it is. But I also like the, the personal reflection and the metaphor of hydration being a process, not an event in a marathon, and value engineering being a process, not an event. Some of the other discussions we've had at, here at Making the Museum recently, someone brought up that budgeting is a process, yep. not an event. And it's very closely yes. related, obviously, to, to value engineering. I think that's, and is that something, so with in your role at the magazine, is that something that you discovered by reading the submissions? Is that something you discover just by working out the magazine? Is that something you proposed to the writers to focus on? What's your relationship to that theme? Did you discover it along the way? Or you've had so much experience, did you already know it and you imparted it? Yeah, something discovered along the way. There was one of the authors in the article talked about their value engineering process on a project that they were working on and bringing my own reflections to that. Oh yeah, this is not a one-time occurrence or it shouldn't be a one-time occurrence and not just to think of value engineering purely within budgetary or dollar values, that there are different ways to define the value of our projects in all types of resources in terms of impact, in terms of significance. There are lots of ways to look at that and to try to think of all of those at the beginning of your project and along the way to see, is this really the best experience that we are able to create with the resources that we have available to us? And there's something you said, I want to loop back to one of the first things you mentioned about the reason for this theme of this episode, this first issue of the magazine we're discussing, was about shorter budgets at that time. Yeah. Was that, is your impression that was a, like a pandemic influence thing? Was it influenced by anything else? Was it both? How are things now? What's your impression of the urgency of that issue of dealing with smaller budgets now as well? That's a lot of questions at once. I'm sorry. No, I think it's a good question. And it was definitely pandemic inspired. I will say nothing about the journal has urgency to it because we put out a call for proposals a year before that issue gets published. So it's also trying to think of any topic that is going to have longevity and hopefully isn't going to date itself by the time the issue comes out. But I think for any of us working in the field, we all come up against budget changes they usually in one direction rather than another. Having to make a case for the budgets of our projects at the beginning of them, if something changes along the way, uh, I can talk about it in my own practice. And I know many other colleagues that feel this way. Sometimes along the way, a designer proposes a really great idea of a different way to bring to life part of the content. And people really like the idea. And the idea, it may cost a little more, or maybe it is an option to do A or B and how it's proposed. But a museum as a client says, oh, but we want both. (laughs) And so finding ways to be able to fund both of those ideas. So I think we're always budget conscious. And so I think this topic was also chosen to be evergreen, that it wasn't just something that would fit at one particular moment in time. 
Got it. Okay, so if all the episodes of the magazine are evergreen, maybe at the end we can come back and I'll just ask you how our listeners can get their hands on these because it sounds like everything we're going to discuss is all still relevant today, Any of the anything in any of the magazines, and so it's a great resource. Maybe yes. we can put that in the show notes later or you can share that at the end of the show. Okay, so number two is the episode or the issue that came out in fall of 2022. And that one was called Effective Exhibitions Should Blank. There's actually a blank line in the title. And I think I love techniques like that, open-ended question to title an episode. Say more about where that idea came from and also what you learned and what you took away, what readers took away from that copy of the magazine. Yeah, that was an interesting issue where we were brainstorming what a, a future topic could be. And I think I recall correctly we started off thinking about the concept of creativity <laughs> and how can exhibitions inspire creativity in their content, in their design, in the ways that they engage visitors. And the more and more we talked about it, we ended up landing on this notion of effectiveness um, in how can an exhibition be effective in, and we kept answering on the editorial team that statement in lots of different ways. And we said, that's the theme of this issue. Let's open that up because there is no one answer to what an effective exhibition should be. There's no one single correct answer. And the authors for that issue came up with a variety of different viewpoints. There were some common themes that emerged in the issue that I saw, and I can list, I guess, maybe two or three of them really quickly. I think one was that effective exhibitions should build community. That can take lots of different forms. Exhibitions can contribute to that process in a lot of different ways. I think we all strive for exhibitions to be inclusive. We want our visitors to feel that they belong in the space. But at the same time, we can invite community members to be part of the exhibition development process, to be part of the advising process, to be artisans or tradespeople to help illustrate and fabricate our exhibitions. I think that is certainly easier said than done in a lot of instances. And community engagement is real and complex work. But I think the payoff at the end of the day is that exhibitions can and maybe should be, as that saying goes, be, was it, be of, by, and for the people in the communities that we are serving. And so ways to think about serving our communities in the exhibition development process itself, not just the content that we are creating, I think is one way that effect, exhibitions can be more effective. I think another way that the authors in this issue were thinking about this particular topic is that effective exhibitions can create engagement opportunities. I think many of us in the field are wary of creating one-way didactic experiences that is just an exhibition talking to you, the visitor. And I think we're trying to find different ways to spark creativity and encourage collaboration and problem-solving and critical thinking with our visitors through a variety of different types of interactions that could be a mechanical or digital interactive. It could be an educator or docent in the space that you're engaging with. It can be just asking questions about the objects that different groups coming through the museum can ask each other or themselves and have a discussion about. And so I think the authors in this issue were particularly looking at that concept of creating engagement opportunities and how to create that to begin with how to prototype that <laughs> so you're testing it out before you open and how to iterate on it after you have opened to find different ways that may be more successful of creating engagement. So it sounds like in that the whole idea of the episode was that there's a blank and anyone can fill it in however they like, but it, just not to be too obvious about it, but it sounds like first and foremost, there was not one main answer to that. Like an effective museum, Correct. if you do nothing else, do this. That wasn't really the outcome. It was more, if you do nothing else, do these 12 things and more. It was more like that kind of an idea. Was there anything that- That's right, and I- Anything that you you said you're expressing your personal opinion, was there, are the ones that you just shared like the top ones? Or is there a, is there one that you think is most important? I'm deliberately putting you on the spot and you can elegantly rebuff my attempt here. Yeah, no, I think those were the top ones. Not every, not all of the authors said it in those terms. Some explicitly did, and there were two articles that specifically called out those two ways. But I think a lot of the articles in that issue circled around those types of ways for an exhibition to be effective. I think one of the articles that was 
meaningful in a different way. <laughs> was an article by two authors, I think it was two, at the Smithsonian's National Museum of American History. And they penned an article about a single object exhibition that they had put on in their museum. And that the title of the, that installation was Reckoning with Remembrance, History and Justice and the Murder of Emmett Till. And the centerpiece was this historical marker commemorating Till that had been defaced over the years by, I think it was 317 bullet holes. So this really provocative object that had a really provocative story behind it. And the article is about how exhibitions sh should provoke. And yes, there is this provocation of the continent itself, but also our exhibitions should not just provoke our audiences, but also they should provoke the curators and the exhibition developers and the designers overall to think about how an exhibition could or sh should be created. How about an exhibition in this instance of a single object? That was the entire focus in a rather large dedicated space. It should provoke a museum overall to rethink about how do we display objects? How do we provide meaningful interpretation? And then I, the authors went on to talk about how we should really provoke the profession overall into thinking about the meaning behind the work that we do in museums. And they go on to talk about a particular approach that they called restorative history, engaging historically harmed communities in meaningful work, provoking audiences to confront these histories after lives, then and now in the present, and to really disrupt the museum processes that we have been going on for so long in our different institutions. And so... I fear I'm not doing this topic justice, and I invite your listeners to read the actual article in this issue to learn more about restorative history. But it was a meaningful article to me about provocation is not just about the visitor, it's also about us and how we do our work and the privilege that we have to do this work. Hmm. Yeah, it sounds restorative history sounds like it's taking a page from restorative justice, which is another yes, movement exactly. that has to do with incarceration, prisons, the justice system. It's interesting. There's, you said, a single object exhibition at the National Museum of American History. Strangely enough, I created another single object exhibition there, the Star Spangled Banner. It's the centerpiece of that museum. It's a giant single object. It's a huge flag, but there are a few other objects here, but that's the main, that's the yeah. main mm -hmm. focus of it. I think that mm -hmm. exhibitions, I don't know, another definition of effectiveness is an effective exhibition should draw your attention to particular things and go for quality rather than quantity. Anyway, I agree with that. <laughs> it's a side note. Number three, going in reverse chronological order, episode to episode or issue to issues, is was called Putting Children First. And that came out in spring of 2022. Why that topic? Why then? And was that focused on children's museums or all museums? It was focused on all museums. And we deliberately wanted a call for papers to be as broad and inclusive as possible so that different museums, be they art or science or children's museums, and they all responded and found their way into this issue, could think about children coming to their museums. I work at a particular museum where we do have lots of children that come, and I think a lot of people are surprised how many children come to the 9-11 Memorial Museum. They understand school groups. People generally get that concept. But then I talk about how the majority of our visitors are not locals. They're from elsewhere in the country. They're from elsewhere throughout the globe. They're coming to New York and they're not leaving their kids behind in the hotel room. They're going to bring them with them. So museums have to think about these younger generations that are coming to their institutions, even if we're not directly <laughs> trying to attract that audience, they will come. And how do we put them first and think about them in the experiences that we create? So that was a little bit of the thinking behind choosing this topic. And what, when you say children, children of all ages, I'm going to guess. And then, so what did the, obviously children's museums would, by definition, write an infinite number of articles about this. But I'm really curious to know what you mentioned, art, art museums, science museums, talking about children. What was some of the, or what were some of the thoughts that they shared or what were, what was, what were the writers of, that did this for you? What were they, what was coming out? And one of the, one of the big themes that should not have been a surprise to me, but was, <laughs> and there's, oh, of course, is that children don't go to museums alone. They come with their families. They come with caregivers. They come in school groups. So this means they have adults with them and that museums really have to help guide their experiences to have fun, to play, to learn and make meaning and think about putting children first means not ignoring the grownups <laughs> that are bringing the kids uh. to the museum. 
<laughs> and so a lot of the authors in different ways were talking about how do you provide content, resources, touch points for the adults who are coming to their museum so that they could help guide their little ones, so that they can be confident in the knowledge that we as the museum is, are hopefully trying to convey so that the adults can take that and share that with the little ones or encourage curiosity or wonder in the spaces that we have. And that can take a variety of forms. Just thinking about design different graphic hierarchies, big, bold images and prints and type for little ones. And then that secondary and tertiary information is more for the adults so that they can use that information to engage in conversation with kids, or they can use that information to ask all the questions that maybe they weren't expecting their little one to ask them. But the museum had already thought through that and provided that answer there for them in the exhibition. Thinking about heights of different things in our exhibition experiences that can either be just for kids or for adults or seated visitors, or is there a height that works well for both? And you want to encourage that multi-generational interaction in your space. So it was interesting that theme ran across regardless of type of institution that different authors were thinking about in some way or another. And what about, did any of the writers touch on the phenomenon of larger museums creating dedicated spaces, especially for children or especially for families with children, creator spaces for kids in art museums, et cetera? That's definitely been a trend that we've seen over the last generation with a lot of museums doing that. In fact, it's becoming a, it's a must-have. Was there any of the writing on that subject? We didn't see writing on that particular subject. I myself am very excited that museums are moving in that direction. But no, we didn't actually have any of the authors touch on that in particular. We did have one author, you may know the Margaret Middleton, who wrote a really insightful article for the issue about inclusive language and design and thinking about whether they are dedicated spaces for children or have elements that the museum knows children are going to be in. How do we really think about our language to be more inclusive? You may not want to say in your museum, share your thoughts with your mom and dad. Not every child come to a museum is coming with a parent. Not all children have a mom and dad. Not all children have two parents. And grandparents or teachers or other caregivers or nannies don't necessarily identify as a parent right. or a dad. And so how do you think about that? Right. What we create, and Margaret also, I remember one example that she talked about was tables and chairs that setting up in, in maybe some of these spaces that you're talking about a square table with four chairs of equal size and height is sending a message that a family is made up of four people without explicitly saying that. Is that a message that some kids may take away and say, oh, this is not a space Ooh. for me or a family that's coming along with a grandmother says, oh, that, that fifth chair that I have at my home is not here in the museum because it's only recognizing this idealized nuclear family. So thinking about those design and furniture decisions even in our museums is important as well. Wow, that is so thoughtful. I've never thought about the idea that just the number of chairs you present or the, the, the whatever the quantity that you order for your museum and what it's what how many units it's divisible in or how many chairs fit around a table is saying something to people. That's something I've never thought about. That's so thoughtful. Yeah, and they give an example in their article of one suggestion is have multiple chairs and multiple sizes that kids and family members and caregivers and others can move in and out and decide how many chairs and big, how many big chairs and how many small chairs then can go around that table. That's so great. That's a, that's so thoughtful. I love that. Okay. Yeah. Halftime show. Let's do a quick station identification. If you're just joining, you're listening to Making the Museum. I'm Jonathan Alger, and this is a project of CNG Partners Design for Culture. If you find this show valuable, please help spread the word. You can rate the show in Apple Podcasts or Spotify. And in Apple Podcasts, you can also write a review. Or you can just tell a friend to check out makingthemuseum.com for everything about this podcast and the associated newsletter. And now, back to the show. Today, we are talking with Ian Kerrigan about Exhibition, the Journal of Exhibition Theory and Practice, which is put out by the American Alliance of Museums. And next up... We've got a few more episodes to recap and discuss what we've learned there. Next up, number four, that title, that episode, that issue was Beyond the Walls. That came out in fall of 2021, right in the middle of the pandemic, Beyond the Walls. I'm betting that there's a relationship between that date and that topic. Am I right about that? 
yes, and just a, a refresher that the journal comes out a year after we decide on the theme and put out a call for papers. So we had chosen this theme then in the fall of 2020. So mm. yes, definitely mm. in the thick of things. Mm. And museums were exploring if our spaces are closed or continue to be closed or need to be shut down again, or our visitors don't yet feel comfortable coming back to enclosed public spaces. What can we do beyond the walls of the museum, be that physically or digitally or in other ways? And so what are the ways? I can think of, I come from a, a design background myself, and I've, uh, obviously I'm an exhibition planner and designer. So when you say beyond the walls, I'm imagining walls, literal ones, not metaphorical ones, and doing things on the other side of them. But that's a metaphor, right? So it could be many other kinds of outreach. What were you know, what were some of the examples? What were the writers into at that time? It, it, there probably a no divergency in this particular one at that time, right? Yeah, there, there was. And there were some things that you might expect about how to use the exterior perimeter of your museum or the if you have grounds outside space on your museum property. There were others that were looking about how to leverage your website or different mobile apps to the best poss- possibility. There were some authors who were talking about, oh, I can, was Michael Burns, who is a museum designer and was a contributor to this issue, was talking about how we have all of our neighborhoods, our cities and the entire world as a potential forum for exhibitions, that they don't necessarily need to be within our museums and to look at the world as a, and I wrote this down, so I will quote Michael here, as a, a collection of in situ teeming with natural and build objects, contextualized phenomena, human history, culture, and social interactions. So really thinking about how do we meet people where they are, not just cognitively and emotionally, as we talk a lot about in our in-gallery experiences, but how do we meet them physically where they are? How do we meet them geographically where they are, out in the communities, out in where they're moving through space when they're not in our museums? So some of the articles tackle that. And then um, there were some that I found interesting that took this theme to talk about different partnership opportunities that museums can move beyond their walls and best leverage their content and hopefully trying to do some good in the world by partnering with another nonprofit organization that maybe has a shared mission or there's some overlaps between the museum's mission and some group trying to better the world through educational or social or health conditions in a particular community. This one article talked about a project that was called 1001 Inventions. Uh, It had an ex-traveling exhibition by the same title, and the project and the exhibition was about the topic of historical inventions from the Muslim world. And in addition to this traveling exhibition, this project also created educational programming in Syrian refugee camps. And the project also raised funds to subsidize the cost of free meals for these displaced people in these camps. And so the exhibition project went beyond just the visitors coming to traveling exhibitions in museums in America and Europe. I don't remember if that traveling exhibition went to to any other places, but the funding model for creating this exhibition and how revenue came in went to also helping these educational and food relief programs in these refugee camps. So something that an exhibition on itself probably couldn't do, something that a museum hosting this traveling exhibition couldn't do, but it could tap into another organization with a proven track record to do this good in the world and hopefully leverage and share those resources to do such. And that I, I'm familiar with that exhibition. I think that exhibition has been traveling for a little while. I yeah. re- when you made the, said the title, I was like, oh, yeah, I remember that one. I remember what it was about. That was a very provocative exhibition just in terms of talking about uh, periods of time in, in global history where Maybe it was the dark ages for this culture over here, but it was anything but dark for that culture over there. And right. algebra and science and chemistry and astronomy and yeah. all of that and all the inventions that came from all of that sort of flowering of knowledge. Yeah, it's a, that's a great one. I remember that one. And I'm guessing that because the submissions were when they were and the magazine is, came out when it was, there weren't any final conclusions like, in order to survive a pandemic, do the following three things by doing things <laughs> beyond the walls. They were more like, here are some examples. This seems to be working. Here's some great green shoots, but it was still relatively cutting edge. Am I right about that? Yeah, it was relatively new ways of thinking about programming for a lot of museums. And you're right. I think there were preliminary conclusions. And I think all of the authors 
understood that they were preliminary, not just because of the timing, but also no one knew where the world was headed yet at that moment and how long this was going to last. And was this temporary visitor behavior? Were we going to revert to the way that we were before? Or were we going to, as visitors in general, all start to act in new ways and unexpected ways. So I think all the authors were a little tentative in drawing any long-term conclusions at that point. And even now, at the time that we're recording this, we're recording this in the, this is the middle of 2023 right now that you and I are talking. And the answer to that question is almost maybe somewhat a little in terms of our visitors right. returning and when are we going to spring back? Some museums are going great guns, other ones not so much, some more than before, but on okay. average, it's it's definitely a little bit like sporting events or cinema or whatever, where there was there were definitely were some changes in the pandemic. And I guess it's the story is still being written, but it does change all the time. It does; those numbers do change. And yes. we were talking in the green room before the show that even at your museum, those things are changing too. But number five before that was called crisis and resilience, and that seems obviously that was that came out in the spring of twenty twenty one. So according to your editorial calendar. That would have been proposed in spring of 2020, and we know what happened then. Uh, that must have been a very raw subject. Do I have that right? And uh, what were people saying at that time? Yeah, you do indeed. That was definitely amid the early months of the COVID-19 pandemic, as well as growing calls for racial justice in our society through lots of platforms such as Black Lives Matter movement. All uh, of this was happening that same spring and summer. Right. Absolutely, 100%. Um, and different ramifications and repercussions are still happening today. But I will say out of all of the, the issues from the past three years that I've been managing editor of the journal, this is the issue that definitely I think may feel a little more time bound <laughs> and maybe a little less applicable. A lot of the authors were talking about different digital applications and what if we're never going to touch anything in our museums again? And how would we do that? And as we've seen now here us sitting in 2023, we've reverted to that norm. <laughs> Visitors are touching touchscreens in our museums again. They're holding on to devices they're engaging with mechanical interactives. So that concern did not have a long shelf life, but we were very concerned at that moment when this issue was being put together. I think there were some other themes that are a little less time bound and maybe more applicable that came out of this issue. I can name just two of them. One was the notion of feasibility. And this definitely is not a new concept that the, the pandemic created. But I think it definitely came to the forefront during this period of economic and institutional and attendance uncertainty. We didn't know where things were headed. Then should our projects or exhibition projects, should they advance? Should they be temporarily deferred? Should they be permanently tabled? I think all of us were asking these questions. And so there was a pair of authors from the Monterey Bay Aquarium that shared a really great feasibility report template and spoke, and there's a link to that in this journal that your listeners can go to and download and use on their own as well. And it was just basically a list of questions and a rubric to ask yourself and your project, different questions related to content and design, to materials and prototyping, towards programmatic and operational impact, and so on and so forth, to really not answer the question, is this project feasible? Should it move forward? But to help an institution have that conversation of the different values, the different inputs, the different outputs, and is this a project that is feasible and should move forward or not? So I thought that was something that we were all thinking about in those early stages of the pandemic, but it is not pandemic specific and I think remains a good tool and a set of questions that we can still ask today on all of our projects. So something that I agree, I think that's great. You just said that listeners can link to and download that resource, that tool that was in that episode. Is that correct? Is that tool available to any listener? Do you have to be a member of AAM? Is it? I'm, I I have read the magazines, but I am a member of AAM, and I've been a member of NAME and all of that. So, is that something that listeners that we can provide to people in our show notes? So they can just go out and grab it. Yeah, the authors of that article provided a link. It's a paper <laughs> journal. You can view it online as a PDF, so you would have to retype it, and you can't click on it. But the link is there, and the Monterey Bay Aquarium, which was the home institution for those two authors, they made that resource publicly available. They thought this was of value to the field at large, and so therefore they put it up as a free resource so that others can download. Great. Okay, that's terrific. I'd love to get that. We'll just put that in the show notes later on for everyone to see. And I think... Uh, oh, sorry, did you, did you have something well, else? Well, I, just, I was just going to say, not to interrupt you, but that, you just reminded me of... I was just writing a piece. I got some interesting responses this week, something I put out that was about short-term trends that are in long-term projects, things that are yes. 
have too short a shelf life that longer term projects are based on and it's and it doesn't work that way it should be the other way around it and I got a lot of response from that and but you've just reminded me a bunch of people wrote in and said you forgot this trend that died and what about this trend and what about beanie babies it got a little bit crazy but you just reminded me of a whole bunch of trends that i totally forgot about like ptsd which is all those yeah. companies that sprang up that that offered touchscreens that electrostatically disinfected themselves and all, all those kinds of products that everybody was talking about. Yes. Should I invest in this? Should I make one myself? And wow, I just, I totally, along with everyone in the world, I totally forgot about those products. I'm glad you reminded me of those. I was just well, talking I'm, about that. To prove that I am a regular reader, the one trend that never goes away are touchscreens. The trend that never goes away. And that, that and interactive touch tables, that's like yeah. the major thing that for some reason will never die in museums. It's found a home in museums. It'll always be there somehow. Absolutely. All right. So that was number five, crisis and resilience. And if we could but, stay there for just a, another moment, because I would be remiss yeah, yeah. if I didn't mention another I guess, theme that came out of that issue was related to the topic of equity. And we had a cultural consultant and I guess DEI practitioner, Monica O. Montgomery. She contributed a really thoughtful opinion piece um, to this issue that included a curated resource list at museums through a red lens of racial equality. And so her issue, or her essay in this issue, makes a lot of salient points going back again to this concept of exhibitions do not just spring out of the head of Zeus. People are making exhibitions. People are designing experiences. People are curating these stories. People are writing the text, forming interpretations that are going to be excluded and the interpretations that get left on the editing room floor. And so that we really have to also be paying attention to who's in the room, who's at the table, be that museum staff, museum boards, invited advisors that we inform, that come, that we invite to inform and advise on our projects that end up getting codified on our walls. And so Monica Montgomery makes a lot of good points in there that I think is something else to that we still need to be keeping in mind that was not pandemic specific by any means and think about how the work of racial equality can still take place in our institutions and needs to take place building anti-racist institutions, decolonizing our collections, lots of other ways. So I definitely recommend her essay and resource list that is in this issue. It is, it is still very timely. Absolutely. Yeah, I know Monica's work. It is indeed great stuff, very powerful, and also very actionable tips that you can institutions can really use and pick up. That's terrific. I'm glad you I'm glad you got that in there. Number six. We have two more. Number six. That was from fall of 2020. That means it would have been proposed in fall of 2019. Mm -hmm. And that's a total change of tone here. Back yes. then, <laughs> that title was Making Space for Fun in Museum Exhibitions. Say more about that. Were we even short on fun in 2019 as well? Where'd that come from? We were short on fun the year after, for sure. This was a topic that had been rattling around the brains of our former editor, Ellen Snyder-Gretier, and my predecessor, former managing editor, Liza Rick-Rawson, and just wanting to do a fun issue and let's do fun in museum exhibitions. That topic was selected in the fall of 2019, not knowing what was to come when this issue would then be published in the fall of 2020 in the middle of the pandemic. And we thought long and hard about, is this an issue that could continue to go forward? Should we get back in touch with the authors and maybe spin this in a different way? And I think we were given a lot of confidence from the authors saying, this is still important and maybe even more important than the time that we were living in fall of 2020, that having fun was not only important, but there was even these reports that were coming out uh, at that time, how in the grip of a pandemic, people needed to have fun. They were looking for these outlets and in different ways to have fun. And that didn't mean that we couldn't also be serious about what was happening in our world at the same time. They were not naturally mutually exclusive. So we did continue forward with this issue. And it's one of my favorite issues. I think the authors shared some really creative thoughts and tips and tricks about fun in different museum exhibitions. And I'm, do you have a couple of those readily at hand? What yeah, were, I um, think- Ways that our listeners can, I'm sure they'd love to get that at that issue, but some ideas they can steal, some news they can use, what came out of that? Yeah, there were definitely some of the authors that talked more about 
different design tactics to use. Two authors from the design firm Pure and Applied contributed an issue and they talked about different ways such as playing with scale, make the visitor feel tiny in an oversized environment or feel really large in a miniaturized setting. How do you play with kinesthetics in an environment? Yes, we sit or we walk or we use a wheelchair or scooter to move around of our exhibitions, but accessibility options in mind, of course, how can we think about crawling or stooping or posing or wandering or typing or writing a whole bunch of different action words and different ways to move in a space. How do we get visitors to look up or to peer down and to do things that we do in our everyday life, but maybe not as consciously as an exhibition design could help guide us towards moving in certain ways. Lots of other things, scenic environments, interactive tactiles. There are lots of different examples in there and that they can all be fun. I think one of the lessons that came out of this article and there was a set of authors from the Museum of Art in Tulsa, Oklahoma, that explicitly made this point, is that lots we have lots of different types of visitors that come to our museums. They have lots of different ideas about how they think they and others should act and behave in our museums. And so we can help our visitors give permission to have fun in a museum. We can create different cues for them to say, you know what, you can laugh here, you can be amused, you can be entertained. And that's not only okay, it's not anathema. <laughs> and you are invited to have all of these different types of experiences and reactions and emotions as you're moving through this exhibition. So different ways that we can give our visitors permission to have fun, because not all of them actually feel that they can have fun in a museum setting. And I can apply that to my own institution. My, my museum is really dedicated to looking at the human experience of traumatic events and histories. But we found over the years that having moments of levity within our exhibitions really are valued and welcome and moments of respite for our visitors. That could be a certain topic like pop culture or talking about dogs, or it can be a different design tactics or delivery mechanisms, different a sort of different color choices or something that is just a break from other types of content that's in the museum. I think about, we tell a lot of stories about the victims of 9-11 at my particular institution. And we have one space that is dedicated to the memory of those that were killed as a result of the attacks. And in that space, you're able to hear different audio remembrances that family and friends and loved ones have left. And a lot of them are just funny. It's how we remember people. And I think about, you know, in my own family, how we think about lost loved ones. And I think about the story of my grandmother who's long deceased. And there's this story about the many times that she would forget to put sugar in her lemon meringue pies. And we all still ate it and smiled and didn't say anything and always wondered, did she know too, or had she lost her taste? And it's just those sort of fun stories. And, and in my museum, I think people are not expecting to laugh or to smile. And so I think all of us, no matter what the subject matter is, can find those moments to engage visitors in different ways. And, and fun is one of those ways by which we can engage our audiences. When you started talking about the theme of this issue, I was scratching my head. But now that you talk about it, emotions are more complex and nuanced and multiplicative than we think. And even the most bittersweet drama movie will have those moments of levity and it almost makes it even more bittersweet. I guess that's the definition of the word. Maybe I just chose bittersweet because I'm thinking about the lemon meringue pie or something like that, more bitter than sweet. Maybe that's why. <laughs> I can still taste it, John. <laughs> <laughs> and the pure and applied, I guess the two authors were Ursula and Paul, I would guess. Uh, Ursula and Miriam Hare. Oh, okay, great. Yeah. So that's a good firm. They know a lot about that kind of stuff. Very interesting. Now I'm just Glad you mentioned that about your museum because you and I have worked together on projects at your museum. And I was going to ask you if you hadn't said that, like, how does fun come in? But now that you mentioned what the examples are, I'm imagining you know exactly the ones you're talking about. I'm like, yeah, the, the dogs, the rescue dogs, and the dogs of the recovery and that photo exhibition and all that. Yeah, it's a lighter way to get into the topic. Right. And yeah, when something is heavy, you need to have a little bit of a break. I've done many projects myself and uh, places that are either Jewish museums or Holocaust museums, yeah. a number of yeah. those things for members of the Council of American Jewish Museums. And those are obviously very, like your museum, very heavy and tragic topics where we want to make sure that people are making every step to avoid it ever happening again. But there is levity and there is the light touch. Like I say, that sometimes the way to tears is actually through humor 
or through something lighter. And I think that's very profound. Yeah. As appropriate, I didn't expect of course. that when you announced the title of this magazine. I didn't expect to feel that way from our conversation. Yeah. Fun can be playful, but it also can be just amusement or joy or discovery or surprise. There's lots of different ways to interpret the concept of fun. Mm-hmm. Humor is one of them. Nostalgia, another. Yeah, that's great. That's really something to live by. Okay, last one. Number seven. This one, this is a big one. This is from spring of 2020. And that was just, I, it probably came out just before. Or when is it? comes out in May? Yes, comes out late April, early May. Interesting. So spring okay, of 2020. So it came out in late April or May of 2020, and the name of that ex- that issue, sorry, just happened to be, Can Exhibitions Save the Planet? Can Exhibitions Save the Planet? And was that wasn't about the COVID-19 crisis because that had been approved the year before. That was about something else. Is it about what I think it is? Uh, so this was about tackling climate change and environmental threats. So this has been a big topic for many of us <laughs> in different parts of our lives but that the exhibition community was really talking about. This was a topic that we saw come up at different conferences, on different panels, people talking about it. And so this was a topic that was really chosen by listening to the field and what people were discussing. And that's how this one was chosen. And say more about what was, there's a question, I'm guessing it's a little bit like effective exhibition should blank. I'm guessing that this is a question that you didn't answer necessarily with a single answer, but a lot of provocation. What was he? I'll just be dumb. Can exhibitions save the planet? Question mark. What did you discover? Maybe. And I think this issue, it was specifically about climate change, but was really trying to take lessons from dealing with this topic that could be applicable to lots of different things that our community does. So one is just thinking about how do we deal with current events? How can we be nimble in our exhibition design in a beneficial way? Could we have digital displays, leverage those more so we can update the content more easily and keep up with changing content? Could we use more temporary labels, hopefully using sustainable and green materials that could be more easily and more cheaply swapped in or out so we have more updated and relevant content in our exhibition spaces that hopefully not only transmit more recent information to our visitors, but also those strategies send a message to our visitors that we as museums and exhibition professionals care about updating this content for our visitors. And we're demonstrating the value of a museum of a, as a place that visitors can go to for this type of information. So I think being nimble was one of the takeaways that I talked. It's not about climate change in particular, but I think that was one of the thoughts and strategies that a lot of the authors were talking about. I think another was to engage in futurist thinking that topics such as environmental threats can give us the opportunity as exhibition planners and designers, as audiences to this to these types of exhibitions, to do some futurist thinking on our own. What do we want our world to be like? In the context of the environment per se, we're observing climate change, unsustainable farming, unsustainable fishing, all of these horrible things. What observations and insights can a museum add, but also what actions can we highlight for our visitors that might lead to an alternate future. And in fact, a little preview to the spring 2024 issue of Exhibition Journal, that theme of the issue is going to be on alternate realities. And the journal's brilliant current editor, Jean Norman Goswami, reminded me of the author, Margaret Atwards. My name wrote this down, 1983 convocation address delivered to the University of Toronto, where she told graduates, and I'll quote here, you may not be able to alter reality, but you can alter your attitude toward it. And this, paradoxically, alters reality, end quote. So I think Atwood's words can remind us of the power that individuals and museum institutions and other organizations do have to shape or reshape our outlooks, our beliefs, our actions. And in the process of changing our mindset, do we actually change the trajectory of our society? I think that's the hope that many of us have in doing this work, that no one exhibition is going to change the world. But can we remind our visitors of their individual agency, of their collective agency, that if they choose to do something to make the world a better place, does that add up to actually making the world a better place? If we think this is the way we want our world to be, can we envision what are the steps we can take to get to that world to be a better place? And so I think that was the takeaway that I took from this issue, which isn't climate change specific, but I think applies to that, but many other things in our world and different societal issues that we're dealing with and tackling. What is it that 
what is it that I can do? <laughs> right. So mu museum as advocate or museum as activist yes. paradigm. So you set up Margaret Atwood, obviously the author of The Handmaid's Tale, which has yep. been big in streaming media fairly recently during the pandemic. You mentioned, if I'm doing my math correctly, there's a gap here for me. You, we talked about the spring 2024's alternate realities. What about fall 2023? What is that one? <laughs> Very good. What is that one going to be? We got to know what the next episode is going to be. Fall 2023? out soon. Yeah, it, it's, it's almost about to go into production. All of the final edits to all of the content are happening this summer. That issue is all going to be about placemaking that you are here, but how can exhibitions best leverage that notion of placemaking to create places, to create different types of spaces? So really looking forward to that issue coming out this fall. Got it. Okay, great. I think we've covered a lot of stuff, even things we weren't going to cover. Okay, let's do a quick recap. This is what we were talking about today with Ian Kerrigan. The subject was exhibition, the Journal of Exhibition Theory and Practice. Number one, big ideas on small or smaller budgets, spring 23. Number two, effective exhibitions should blank all 22. And number three, putting children first, spring of 22. Number four, beyond the walls, fall of 21. Number five, crisis and resilience, spring of 21. Number six, making space for fun in museum exhibitions, fall 20. And number seven, can exhibitions save the planet, spring of 20. We also talked about the ones that are coming up. This fall is going to be on placemaking, and next spring is alternate realities. How did I do? Did I get all that right? You did excellent. Okay. <laughs> I want the box set right now myself. I don't know. I'm, I'm sure our listeners are thinking the same thing. So first I could say, if you're interested in becoming a subscriber of the journal, I can provide you this with this link, Jonathan, as well, but I can say it <laughs> right now. You can go to www.aam.com us.org slash programs slash exhibition hyphen journal. And there you can find all the information about the journal, how to become a subscriber going forward. We'll put right that now uh, for listeners. We'll put that in the show notes as well. Yep. Um, right now, all of the back issues of the journal are also available online. They are going to maybe moving to a different location later this summer. That's uh -huh. TBD. <laughs> Jonathan, are they, are they available online? I'm peppering you with question. Are they available on for subscribers or for everybody? They Right now, they're available to everybody. Okay. Um, so, so you do not need to be a subscriber of the journal. What happens is all of the issues that are one year or older, you can go online and read all of the articles. For the two most recent issues that have come out in the past year, you can see the table of contents. And then we have two teaser articles that you can read within that first year period if you're not a subscriber. Right. Right. You want to get the subscribers to help support what you're doing, obviously. So there's a, a read between the lines here. You just said that they might move somewhere else. So that's a cue to listeners. Go to that web address and get those old episodes if you want to be a collector. Pronto, if you can. Do I have that right? Are you allowed to say that? Am I allowed um, to say that? I'm going to correct correct that. So okay. what I gave before was if you want to become a subscriber and get right. the issues going forward. Uh-huh. Right now, if you're interested in looking at any of the past issues online, <laughs> you can go to the former name website, which is www.name-aam.org slash past issues online, which is P-A-S-T hyphen I-S-U-E-S hyphen O-N-L-I-N-E. And you can see all of the different issues going back to 1990. <laughs> They definitely have gotten so better. Listeners and can just go and download any of these and or look at them online or whatever. They are right now a they're great resource right to our community. They're all just sitting there. Oh, wow. This is terrific. Wow. This is a great, terrific. I didn't even know that. I knew that some of them are available. I didn't realize it went back that far. Okay. I'm going to be the first person going to that website right after we finish recording this. All right. Excellent. Ask you a little bit more about that in just a second. But Ian Kerrigan, it's been great to have you on the show. If listeners would like to get in touch with you, what's the best way for them to do that? Email, website, LinkedIn? Uh, email is the best way to, to reach out to me. You can reach me at my professional email address, which is I-K-E-R-R-I-G-A-N at 911memorial.org. That's 
911-M-E-M-O-R-I-A-L.org. Got it. Great. Okay. I think we covered it. Thank you, dear listener, for your time. In exchange, I hope this episode gave you some news you can use. And if you would like to get in touch with me, have an idea for the show, go to makingthemuseum.com, hit contact. You can also find me on LinkedIn under Jonathan Alger, A-L-G-E-R. I'm always looking out for new links in. You can also find me at the website of my firm, C&G Partners. Okay, that's it for this episode. By the way, did you know this podcast has an older sister? It's a very short newsletter, three days a week, under the same name. One quick insight each of those days from museum leaders, exhibition teams, and visitor experience professionals. You can subscribe also at makingthemuseum.com. Big subscribe button in the menu at the top. Meanwhile, I'm Jonathan Alger, and I hope you'll join me next time for Making the Museum. Bye for now.